GrowCFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Felix Ferrari with me. Now, Felix is the author of the book Scale at Speed, 2Y, 3X. And I know that an awful lot of our members in Grow CFO are part of fast-growing organisations. So, Felix, welcome to the show. It's nice to be back. Thank you. So, tell me what Scale at Speed's all about. <laughs> um. It's a, it's a simple, practical framework for how to scale your company. Is that's the, the 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 short form of it? Um, I've got my background is um, I had twenty odd years as a serial founder, and and I started a bunch of companies, and some of them were really great, and some of them were shockingly awful. And the reason they were shockingly awful was because I didn't know what I was doing. So I was I, I was a terrible manager, and you know I, I was flailing all over the place, and I was doing everything by trial and error. And it wasn't until the, the second half of my career that, um, that I started getting it right. And looking back, the, that, that trial and error became really stressful. It was really stressful. And it kind of poisoned my enjoyment of being a founder and an entrepreneur and a, you know trying to change the world for better and all of that. And so it was, um, I, f- I found myself kind of, uh, just lost and stressed and I needed help. So when I finished that career, I look back at what, um, what I would have loved to have had. And it was kind of, it's almost like guidelines or guide ropes. I wanted somebody to say, do you know what? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, uh, I, you, there's a lot of management is prior art, right? There's an awful lot out there that you can go and read and you can find out. Um, and, uh, you don't have to invent it all again. And so the book is basically is a, is a, is a set of frameworks for, do you know what? It's all been done before. Here's, here's how to think about it simply. And here's how to, to approach scaling your business. If you've never scaled a business before, because there are some things that you should do, and there are some things that you definitely shouldn't do. And there's, there are some ways of thinking about how to scale a business that make it really easy to do it. And so I wanted to encapsulate all of that. Mm. So 2Y3X, what does that stand for? Uh, two years, three times revenue. Okay. Grow revenue yeah. three times in two years. That yeah. really, really is scale at speed. Uh, it really is. I retired when I was 47 and and went off and decided to look at being a portfolio person, a non-exec. And I realized that there were lots of experts and that I had lots and lots and lots of competition. And there I was, I'd, I'd had a bunch of companies. I'd been responsible for six companies that I'd started and another 12 companies that I was, uh, that were in this group that I was CEO at. And I had a lot of experience of, of, simplifying things and applying great principles like balanced scorecard and scaling up and, and um, you know, good, ma- solid management principles. And I knew how to shortcut a lot of the trial and error. So um, I put together 2Y3X as, as a growth accelerator program, a commercial accelerator program for companies that had 
kind of plateaued. They got to a certain point, usually one or two or three million pounds in revenue, and had stalled and didn't know how to then grow, how to break through that business plateau and grow. And I knew how to do that because I'd done that a load of times up until, uh, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, because I, I guess you, you set the business up with some, some great, great ambitions. You struggle along, you get your first customers, you get it to a certain level, and then everybody in the business is, is busy and doing business as normal. And it, it does all, it's been successful to an extent, but it's all slowed down. And you, you kind of need that extra level of vision of where you're going injected into it. Well, there's a secret, and it's a horrible secret because it's one of those secrets where you it's a bit, right, uh, silly metaphor time, right? When you're a kid, when you're a teenager, and, and you know that you can think as well as, as the adults, but there's something that they're not telling you about what it's like to be an adult, yeah. right? You, do you remember that? There's yeah, that like, so what, yes. Why can't they just tell me the secret? And then I'll know and it'll be all all right, right? Um, uh, there is, unfortunately, a horrible little secret when it comes to scaling companies. And, and the horrible secret is you get to your first million by chutzpah and force of will and charisma and, you know, sheer determination. And then you get to your second million by turning that sort of success into, okay, I now need to turn it into a business. What happens at that point is you spend that sort of million to two million uh, of revenue assembling a team. You hire a couple of people who've got experience and you start putting in place business processes and you figure out what clients you can sell well to, right? And you, you build this thing and it starts growing and it's great and it starts getting better and better and better. And then it starts grinding to a halt and you think, why am I not growing anymore? And the, this hor horrible little secret is the reason you don't grow anymore is because you are optimized and now perfectly designed and in fact getting better and better and better at being the size you're at now. Yes, yes. Right. Absolutely, that, no. absolutely see that. Isn't it awful? Yeah. It's, because you, you can't see it from the inside. And when you go outside and you say, why have I stalled? You say, if people say, well, everybody does it. All you have to do is get through it, right? The reality is to get through it, what you need to do is design version two of your company that uses new, better processes, that's got a better org structure, has got better management, has got better hiring strategy, better marketing, that's designed for a company that, that's twice your size, not for the company you're at right now. So that's, that's the secret, and it's uh, uh, the grubby little secret, if you like. Um, so uh, once you realize that and you start thinking, okay, so how am I going to design the next phase of the company? Um, the 2Y3X program and the Scale at Speed book, which is the manual for the 2Y3X program, basically shows it, it, it's, it gives you a framework so that you can plan the next phase of your company by working backwards from a lofty goal and then start figuring out what actions and transformations and changes you need to make in order to deliver your lofty goal. And then you need to figure out what's different between what you're doing now and the newly designed processes for the next. And then you have to figure out how to do that. And so the book and the, the program are all about 
how do you make those transformative steps without throwing the baby out with a bathwater, without risking this, what you've got and do so brilliantly now, without pissing people off in your company, and whilst uh, trying to avoid, and, and, and if you do it right, successfully avoiding the resistance to change that you get when things are going quite well. Yeah. So, Felix, you're, you're coming the, at this as being the, the entrepreneur, being the founder, being the CEO. A lot of our audience are the CFO in that position. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the CFO fits into that visioning the, the future company? <laughs> right. At the risk of being tactless and impolitic and annoying people unnecessarily, um, I just want to tell you what, what bad looks like and then what, what great looks like. Okay. Um, in most companies, when you've got systems that work really well and you've kind of honed and perfected and made more efficient and effective the company that you are today, and as I said, that company can't grow because it's optimized for being the company you are today. That's usually when the FD or the CFO are at their happiest because it's all working. They've made it profitable. They've got the systems. They've got the workflow. They've got the remuneration strategy. They've got the incentivization all sorted for the size of company you are now. Yep. Right? But we all need to progress. Um, capitalism is based on companies growing, not staying the same. Absolutely. So, and, and, and here I am only addressing those companies that want to grow. Because if you've got a company that is perfect and stable and does what you want it to do and provides everybody with the lifestyle that they want it to and, and is perfectly fine like that, that's great. That's a fantastic kind of business. It's just not a business that I, can, I work with because I, I only work with companies that really want to scale who want to double or triple their revenue who really want to you know usually they want to sell at some point right they want to maximize their value so um so you've got to make first you've got to make a choice do we want to grow at all now if we do want to grow you have to recognize that it's going to require a mindset shift and a different strategy the current strategy and plan works now you've got to devote some time to designing the plan that will work when you're not a £2 million company, but you are a £4 million company. And so the CFO's role in that is to enable that, is to liberate that kind of thinking. In fact, you are the ones who control the purse strings, and you're the ones who say, do you know what? If we can find a way of doing this without risking what we've got, then yes, we will find a way of financing it. Now, obviously, the CEO's job is to find the finance if you need it. And the CFO's job is to manage the finance and to make sure that everybody's doing things in a sensible and, uh, uh, and clever and pro progressive manner, if you like, to sort of make sure, hold the CEO to account. Uh, no pun intended. Um, but there is a moment where you've got to make a decision how much are we going to set aside for the transformation design that we're going to have to do? And how are we going to parcel out this, the changes that uh, we want to make that maybe 20 changes in the first year, you know, change to how we hire people, a change to who we've got on the bus, um, a change to 
uh, our proposition and how we articulate it and how we run events to draw inbound uh, customers, how we manage our uh, our finances, whether we're transitioning away from offices and towards some other system, whether we're transitioning away from the traditional nine to five to the Swedish or Finnish systems, uh, or Icelandic now. Um, uh, you know, what, what are the things that we're going to have to change in order to be fit to be twice the size that we are now? How do we do that in a small, incremental, low-risk way? And, and that's what 2Y3X is and the Scale of Speed uh, program is. It's a, how do you break these down into small enough bits that they make meaningful change in the long term? but are very low risk to do one at a time or four at a time if you're doing them on a quarterly basis for the next couple of years. Yeah. So is, uh, it, is it fair to say from a finance leader's point of view, get all of that routine, all of that business as usual off your plate, get the re- your number two and the rest of the team dealing with the governance, the reporting, <laughs> the managing yeah, absolutely. The budget and all of that and free yourself up. But, but it's the same as it's the same argument that we have with the CEO, right? You're the bottleneck. Yeah. You are the bottleneck. If you want to get out of the weeds, hand the stuff that's in the weeds to somebody who really, really wants to be where you are and let them get on with it. It's, you know, rule number one in half a business review, find people who are better at it than you are and liberate them, right? Give them the freedom to, to, to fail and to thrive. Um, the, the power and the, the, the power of the process is, is that actually what we do is rather than giving these tasks of transformational change, small tasks, incremental tasks of, of transformational change, we don't give those to the senior management team to do. We assemble a growth lab team. The growth lab team is superstars from, with, from within and across the business. The senior management team have got a vested interest in the status quo. Right. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting okay. way of looking at so, it. So I the CFO is, is CFO is in a unique position of being able to sidestep out of it by delegating, so that they can join the growth lab team. Now, there's an aspect of the growth lab team that some finance people might find slightly scary, because it's the future superstars in the business. Because there's going to be somebody 21 years old who's going to be running their own business in 10 years' time, and it shines from every pore. Because you've got somebody who's a developer, and you've got somebody who's never going to be a manager, and you've got some superstar who's big brain, and you've got somebody else who's a superstar because they're brilliant at doing things, and you've got somebody else who's on the growth lab team because they're brilliant at getting people to go along with them, right? It's scary to start educating them about how the business works, but we do that very deliberately. So... In the first session or second session, we teach everybody in the growth lab team how a PL works. And we simplify it, obviously, so that it's non-scary. And we usually say, if we're working with service-type businesses where the, we want to increase the profit margin to 20%, we usually say we have uh, sales, uh, bought-in costs, so costs of sales, 20% net profit, and then all of your overheads, right? Yeah. So we, we, we tip the whole thing upside down just to make it easy for newbies to understand. Now that allows them to focus on the notion that profit is really, really important. 20% net profit, as you all know, puts three months cash in the bank, right? It, it gives you your balance sheet safety network uh, net. 
Um, uh, but it also it finances growth. It finances hiring better people and investing in plant and so on and so forth. Um, and the cash that's generated out of that finances things like uh, uh, rent deposits and, and new investments and things. So really, really important that everybody on the Growth Lab team who's designing the future really gets the importance of the financial reporting in the company. So we ask the finance director or the CFO to present every at every month's um, uh, 2Y3X roadmap meeting, uh, half an hour spent presenting the latest numbers so that the bright spark who's 21 and is, you know, kind of new in their career can say, what's that line there that says consulting? Or what's that line there that says uh, uh, depreciation? So Ask silly can... boy questions. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes, and, and this is the signal, when you're embarrassed to answer, maybe you need to look harder at the number yourself. Ah, quite. <laughs> yes, I get that totally. Um, but yeah. but it's, it becomes part of the education of the next generation in the company. Mm. And, and I love that, the, the sort of the change from being CEO and CFO, command and control, what we says go, go and do this um, kind of management, which usually accomplishes three or four big things a year, to having a team of five or six people who were all picking up a task of designing some new way, a new and better way of doing some aspect of the business, and then taking the responsibility for making it happen. But you, you've flattened the structure completely. There's, there's no hierarchy there. It, it, it's wonderful. I mean, there's yeah. still a management hierarchy and a coaching and mentoring hierarchy and a delegation hierarchy. But you, you've empowered these these five or six folk in your mm. growth team to an incredible degree. But yeah. Without Felix, actually you, ever saying to them, we're going to give you a scary amount of responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> Which is but great. There's because, a scary amount of responsibility here. There's also a scary target and a scary time scale. Mm, yeah. Now, triple the business yeah. in two years, yeah. and you just put together this team of diverse Versus. individuals to get you there. Yeah. Oh. Right. So, listen, there's a, a that great, process work. <laughs> there's a great uh, – so, so, by the way, I, I, we've been running TY3X now since 2015, so we're coming up seven years, um, and Scalar Speed is now – Worldwide, uh, 2Y3X program is now worldwide. We're in the Middle East, we're in uh, Zambia, we're in um, uh, North American Canada, Spain, it, I mean, you name it. Um, and the book's just uh, been picked up by a Chinese publisher, so it's coming out in Chinese uh, yeah. later this year uh, in audio book and in uh, uh, paperback format, So, uh, which is quite cool. Um, so, so we've been doing this for quite a long time. And, and one of the things that I was taught very early on in my entrepreneurial career was come up with a big, hairy, audacious goal. And I didn't know why I was being taught it. And, and then eventually somebody, somebody I, gave I, I me. I teach that when I start talking about balanced scorecards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's, you know, straight out of Jim Collins, right? Um, uh, and and it, it, Jim Collins is BHAG as, as your sort of the thing you can change the world with, right? Uh, what is it? The hedgehog concept. So 
I, I, I was given this by rope, much as you're given answers in school that to learn, right? So I was told, have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Why? Because you should, right? Mm. I think the original justification was if it's, if it's big and hairy and audacious, if you miss by a bit, at least you'll have done more than you would have done had you had a modest goal, right? Yeah. That was the original justification. I think that's, that is the original thinking, definitely. Right. But I, I like scientist- it a bit more specific than that. So there's a scientist called Dr. Edwin Locke, who about 45 years ago came up with something called goal-setting theory. And he's, he and many, many others have been validating it for the last 40 years. Goal-setting theory basically says the more challenging the goal, the more likely you are to achieve it. And lots of different reasons for it, uh, all scientifically uh, proven. One of them is if it's really, really absurd, and really challenging, you're more likely to put together a plan of action to make it happen. And if you follow your plan, you're more likely to achieve the goal, right? Yes. Because most of us say, we'll, put, we'll, we'll do 10% increase this year in revenue or 20% increase in revenue. And most people look at that and they say, well, we'll just have to roll our sleeves up and work a bit harder. And then it doesn't happen because, you say know. Say 100% increase in revenue, or actually we're going to do something fundamentally different. Absolutely. You know, you, and you could, as she said, it, it could be uh, 2Y, 20X. Well, if it were 20X, guess what? I'd spend the next four months becoming an expert in M&A. Yeah. Right? And I'd go out and I'd raise some money and then I'd go out and I'd buy a bunch of companies and I would hit my 20X or 18X. Yeah. And you know so, something, Felix, across my career, yes, I've worked on strategy, but I've worked at the other end of this, that the company's in a bit of trouble and you've actually got mm, to save it. Yeah. And I've had a few of those the, myself. <laughs> the sort of hairy things you've got to do in order to stop it going bust mm. are very, very similar to what you're mentioning. You've effectively got to tear things up and do things different. You're not necessarily going for the, the huge growth figure. You're going for yeah. let's let's replace what's not making a profit with stuff that is making a profit. Yeah, kind of. It, it is. You know, I, I think I started the book with Lao Tzu, um, you know, uh, the journey of a, uh, a thousand miles starts with a single step. Mm. Um, it, it is a, a, an enormous amount of um, business leadership is about small steps relentlessly paced. Yeah. Doesn't have to be fast. And I, I love that story in the book from the Himalayas. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's, a, it's possibly a little long to, to to tell now, but it's 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 about it's a story about um, a trek into the mountains. Please buy the book. Scale at speed. Amazon everywhere in the world. <laughs> um, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but Felix, what we've been talking about growth. Now, what do you do in a crisis? Are there other things in the book equally applicable? Um, yes, and actually, while I was writing the book, um, COVID hit. So I, I then actually slipped in a chapter at the last minute, actually, of what we were doing with our, specifically with our clients, um, because uh, COVID, the first lockdown, flattened the uh, about. 60% of our clients, 2Y3X program clients, um, are agencies of some sort, ad agencies, marketing agencies, digital agencies, production companies, that kind of thing. Um, and all marketing stopped overnight. Uh, and almost all of our clients lost 
north of 75% of their business overnight uh, in terms of revenue, you know, budgets being halted, projects being halted, people ghosting, you know, it was, it was, it was hideous. And because they're in the TY3X program and we're management experts and we know what to do, uh, the first people that we they were, they were turning to was, of course, us and my you know, me and my team. And, and it was amazing because um, it actually led to the international expansion of TY3X in a funny kind of way, but it's a story for another day. Um, but what we did is, is we basically said, okay, We've got this two-year framework. We've got this two-year strategy map. Starts at the end. We figure out what's happening at the, in the third year that allows that means that at the end of that third year, our lofty goal is going to be hit. Then we figure out what's going to be uh, what we're going to be doing in the second year to allow the third year to be hit. And then we figure out what's going to be what we need to do in the first year in order to get to the second year. And so we thought, do you know what? This is a crisis. Why don't we do a three-month version of this? So one of the bright sparks in my company uh, went off and, and trademarked QuickMap. <laughs> uh, so we now have this, this a three-month cut-down version of um, the 2Y3X program. And it basically does exactly the same thing. It says, right, let's set a lofty goal that is going to be true in three months' time. What's that goal going to be? Well, we've survived, we've kept all of our staff, and we are making money again. Okay? Three lofty goals. To stick at the end of three months, okay. So what we do? What's happening in the third month for that to be able to happen? Right. Well, our entire team has got to be focused on selling, and uh, our entire team's got to be really, really happy. So we've got to figure out something cultural that makes that glues everybody together. What are we doing in the in the month before that? Well, uh, our sales process needs to be nailed on. Uh, we need to have re-engaged with the clients that w- have stopped spending money uh, and so on and so forth. A whole bunch of different things. I guess you um, have something relevant for those people you want to sell to in month three. Right. So what do we to, need to, to do buy. now in order to create relevance? Right? Mm. And so we basically, we sat down with each of our clients. We said, right, what is it that your clients buy from you now? They buy marketing and future marketing strategy from you now, right? Okay. What is your client panicking about now? They're panicking about their supply chain. They're panicking about whether or not they've got, uh, whether any shops are ever going to open again to stock their goods. They're panicking about whether or not people are going to buy their services anymore. Yeah, They're panicking about whether or not they're going to be made redundant tomorrow, whether their company's even going to survive. Okay, great. Now we've got a brief. How can you go to your client and say, listen, we've been thinking about your problem. And we've got something that we can all do. It'll help us. It'll help you. It'll distract us all. We'll roll our sleeves up and we'll just get on with it. And we will prep for something new. Right? And so we, we, uh, we did a quick map with each of our clients. And then we set them tasks. And the, the tasks were busy tasks, busy making tasks. Everybody in the company suddenly rallying around, having to do stuff outside of their normal day job, so that we could very quickly go and answer our customers' most pressing needs. And it was amazing because sometimes the stuff that they were doing wasn't quite right. It wasn't the right answer. But just getting them to do stuff in that first month when everybody was flailing 
and everybody was panicking. They were doing stuff. They were doing proactive getting stuff done. And it was amazing to watch the, the work rate and the engagement because it was engaging this or panic. Hmm. And maybe 50% of the initiatives that they took on in that first month in any given company worked. And 50% of them turned out to be a waste of time. But the 50% that worked made every single one of our clients survive COVID. Yeah. Four I, of our I, clients had I, their most profitable months ever during the first lockdown. Wow. Wow. I think in a crisis like that, and you've got a load of initiatives, yeah, 50% of them probably are only ever going to work. Problem is you don't know which 50% until you try them. Yeah, of course. It's the, the, the age-old, hey, listen, I'm in the marketing game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stat I've owned. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, crises come in lots of different forms, right? Um, the running a program like this is about um, lots and lots of regular as clockwork, quarterly tasks being delivered mm -hmm. using a formula, research month, prototype month, implement month, research month, prototype month, implement month, and all these little boxes that you build with a team of five or six people pretty quickly stack up to a huge change in the way that the business is run and the way that the, you know, the amount of money that it is making. And that's, you know, 50% of our fees at, on the 2Y3X program are dependent on us hitting the client's revenue target. So we set it right at the beginning. It's three times revenue or three times profit or five times value or whatever it is. Once we set it, 50% of our fee only happens when we hit that. So, you know, we've all, we're all very focused on what's going on uh, and whether or not it's working. But, but you have to, I said it, I think I mentioned it before, you have to be relentless about it. The reason there's a program is because if you try and do this organically, something will happen, something will get in the way, a client will call up and say, well, can we, no, I want a meeting on that day. And you'll have any number of excuses for letting things slip. And the program itself is relentless. It's the same day every month, no excuses. You turn up and you've done your homework and you've implemented what you, you promised you were going to do, uh, going to implement. And we are holding you to account as the external advisors and the scary people who don't take no, don't take, I, you know, the dog ate my homework um, as an excuse, or I lost my biggest client, or I lost my planning director, or whatever it is. That's run of the mill. That's normal. That's normal for business. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess once this is this is established, Felix, your your role is as much a, about making the guys in the company accountable for doing what they're doing. But the funny thing is, I and mean, the beauty of it is we come in and we're the scary guys from the outside and it's our rules and we're in charge of the room and there's no hierarchy in the room other than us being the chair. Very quickly what happens is they start holding each other to account. Mm. Every month they're coming in and presenting the pre their their tasks, you know, what their progress they've made on their task. Yeah, so you'll get somebody presenting the new way of reporting KPIs, for example, uh, or or the new way of doing customer satisfaction surveys, and they'll have presented and they'll have done a fantastic presentation. Everybody else around the table goes, "My presentation's got to look like that next month," 
And then what happens is three months in, everybody suddenly realizes that their task might impact one of their other colleagues' tasks. And so they start talking to each other. Six months in, they're doing tasks together and they've got a behind-the-scenes meeting rhythm going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And you get this amazing sort of cat's cradle thing that happens where they start lifting up the company by taking responsibility and the CEO suddenly realizes that the burden isn't, is no longer all on their shoulders. And it's a wonderful moment of liberation. And, and when we do the nine-month review, we're no longer in charge of the room. They are. And all we've got to do is make sure that they do the right tasks in the right order for the remainder of the program. So it's fascinating to watch the transformation that happens when the next generation starts actually lifting some of the weight of making the changes that are required if you have a company that is scaling. Because by definition, a scaling company is changing all the time. Absolutely, it is. Yes. So, Felix, if you're scaling at this sort of speed, you're, you're looking at doubling, tripling your revenue, your profits, whatever. How often, as part of this process, will you find that there's a, a fundraising exercise coming on, there's equity coming into the business in order to, to achieve that level of growth? Uh, very rarely, actually. <laughs> but more often than not, what happens is that, the, that you start getting a flood of approaches from companies that want to buy your company because it suddenly started to, to take off. And it's very obvious when companies start doing really, really well is not from the financial numbers, but just from, from the morale and the reputational change that happens. You know, when everybody in the company is happy and it's growing uh, and they're clapping their hands as it were, um, you know, it's, you can, you can tell from the outside. So uh, we recently uh, sold a program company for eight and a half times EBITDA. um, Wow. uh, Which is, uh, twice what they would have got before the program. Hmm. Um, and, and just because their self-confidence starts shining through. Um, so, it, yes, people do go and raise money. Um, and they'll do that because they've decided that one of the tasks is they want to acquire somebody to bolster that part of the business that they're a bit weak in. Or they need to buy a company in order to uh, resource up to meet new demand, or they want to go international or, or something like that. So yes, those things happen. In order to fund growth, growth is always funded um, in the program, where we assume it's going to be funded out of consistent profits. Okay. And so the, the one of the first things we do, well, I've already mentioned, we teach people what profit is in the first place. But some of the early processes are about firing unprofitable clients or repricing them. Mm-hmm. Most of us have un- unprofitable clients, and we don't know because we don't measure. Yeah. Um, going back into that turnaround situation, oh, well, I yeah, I'm having spades. And the very first time I got involved with having to turn a failing business around, and we were a business unit in ICI, who and it's, a, it's a similar sort of thing to COVID, that if you get a fundamental change in your market, things that worked yesterday suddenly don't tomorrow. Mm. We found that our raw material price doubled overnight right. so suddenly a whole load of stuff wasn't profitable anymore the margin yeah. got really squeezed because you know, it's classic supply and demand situation right. uh, 
a huge surplus in supply. Yeah. But then you get into, I mean, you know, that that I can afford to say this because I've come out the other side of a long entrepreneurial career and now I'm an, an advisor and I do lots of MA and I buy companies. But um there's some exhilaration in in having a strategic challenge like that mm. because I mean, blue ocean strategy kicks in, and yeah. that, and for me, that's just that's exhilarating. Mm. Um, but it can be scary. I mean, obviously, it is incredibly scary for the people in inside a business. Yeah. And the more that you get the people, the superstars in the business involved in dealing with problems and dealing with strategic change, the the less resistance you'll get from their colleagues and their peers in the business. It's when it's all handed down from on high and you're lobbing in your change grenades. Oh God, the boss has been to another bloody seminar, right? Um, uh, It's when these are being designed by people like me on the growth lab team, um, as it were, from the point of view of almost anybody in the business, it becomes, the resistance melts away. Mm. Yeah. And the enthusiasm for adopting things that have been designed by my peers, um, uh, it, you know, it's it's a fabulous process. That's why having some of the right people in that growth lab team that have might not be the senior folk, but have the ear of the rest of the business, that becomes... Or the respect, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and everybody knows who the... C- right. Everybody knows who the superstars are, yeah? In yeah. exactly the same way that everybody knows who the C players are. Mm. And if you've got any C players, you should be ashamed of yourself. Get rid of them tomorrow. I mean, tomorrow, yeah. like uh, Monday. Because uh, there is nothing that, that no, no good that will come of keeping them on for an extra day. Um, but superstars, you need to recognize. And, you need, and, mm. and having a process like this where the superstars can aspire to be on the team that's designing the next phase of the company is amazing. Another thing that I get asked all the time when talking about this, especially from a finance point of view, is what's the incentive for people to be on the growth lab team? Do we need to give them uh, EMI options, for example, or do we need to give them bonuses? And, and the reality is, without exception, being on the team is reward enough. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I, I really do believe that Money itself is not a motivator. Lack of money can be a huge demotivator. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got to take money off the table. But... Take money off the table. It's not that that motivates. It's it's success, achievement, hitting the goal. Being fulfilled. It's, being, it's yeah, having being a fulfilled. voice and having a say. Yeah. You know, we all want to feel like our opinion is hmm. valued. Yeah. You know, even if it's a, a placebo just being asked engages us more, mm. right? And, and you know, th- there is sort of, uh, I'm sure you, you, everybody in your audience knows, that there, there were ways of managing uh, difficult people in a room, like mm. sort of standing up and saying, so uh, tell me exactly what the problem is that you're trying to articulate. Let's write it down. Have I captured that? Is that exactly right? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Really glad that we've captured that. Great. And guess what? They're placated and they'll shut up and they'll stop being the, the, the moaning person. Um, so we know that asking um, people's advice and opinions and for their views is really powerful. I think thinking about that team, 
Felix, just you said, well, you don't want C players. You should be getting rid of C players. Well, you don't want C players in anywhere in your anyway, company. But is is there something about the the attitudes of the values of the people you put on the team that's important? So I'm a huge proponent of um, everything comes down to the core values of the people involved in a company. And they come from the top, right? The, the, mm. the, the people who start the company are the ones who collect people around them who share their values. And every time there's a schism, every time there's a misunderstanding, it's because you don't share values, you don't trust people, right? If, you sh- if, if I know that every single time, so my core value, um, I only really have one, but it, 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 my core value is honor, right? It's a bit difficult to describe, but I know when somebody's behaved dishonorably. So if I am working with a colleague who, whose core value is also honor, then I know that no matter what happens, they will make their decisions, right or wrong, uh, with honor in mind or in the background, okay? So I don't have to second guess them. I don't have to not trust them. And that's, that takes an enormous amount of burden off my plate, right? It means I can focus on my stuff because I know they're approaching it their way, the right way, okay, because we share values. Now, as we build that team out, we should be looking for people who share our values. And so defining what your values are is really, really useful exercise right from the beginning. Because, you know, if somebody's values are, I just want to um, break things, and change the world. But another's values are, I want peace and I want harmony and I will seek to make harmony. Then those two people at some point are going to have a falling out. And that is destructive. So you want people around you who have, who share your values. Now that doesn't mean they have the same cultural background as you or the same education or the same, uh, gender or age or, you know, any of the, the sort of the, the differentiating markers, okay? This is not about that. My colleagues are from every nation, uh, every hue, every orientation. Uh, they all speak different languages as their first language, I and yet we all share the same values. You've got to have that differentiation in order to have innovation. Yeah. If you just have a, a body of people that are set in your image, then you'll get ideas that are the same as your image. And that's not what you want in this process. You want creativity. You want difference. Totally. And, and you know, even when I, mean, I spent the first couple of years of doing um, the program, when I first went out as, as a consultant, uh, focusing on balancing boards, gender, doing uh, gender balancing boards, and what I discovered in doing that, I was doing that just on principle. I was doing that because I, I just got fed up of seeing a, a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, men around the table um, doing men type things. And um, what I found was decision making improved drastically. I'm almost exponentially better decision making when you had a balanced board. And then it started degrading if the board became too balanced the other way. So I like diversity. It creates stability and consensus and um, you get lots and lots of different viewpoints. And those different viewpoints, a lot of the time when you're sitting in a board meeting and you've got uh, four 
uh, women on the board for the first time, and they're raising things that the men would never have occurred to them in a trillion years on yeah. their own. You've got to have this. Um, you know, it's it's just, it's, so, you know, I, it's a basic it's a hygiene factor, right? That you have a diverse team. C players have no business in your business. C players are people who actively do not share your values, right? They will be an A player somewhere else. Can't tell you how many times we've fired people who are counter culture to whatever our culture was uh, in, a, in a business. And they've gone off to somewhere else that I would regard as being toxic and they've thrived. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and I'm sure that the company that they went to regards us as being toxic too. So, it's, you know, it's all, it's all relative. Yeah. And all, we all have our own lenses and perspectives. But um, you shouldn't have people who do not share your values in your company because that's where resentment and resistance and negativity uh, – and, and, and I'll tell you something really funny – the number of times I've said to people, the management team, right, so who are your C players? And everybody looks around the table and they all go, well, there's Mark and there's Sally and there's John and there's Dana and what have you. Uh, and I say, so why don't you fire them all? Um, move them somewhere where they, they will be happier and you will be happier and everybody else will suddenly stop using them as an excuse for not doing as much work. Um, and they say, well, we can't do that because Dana's in charge of our social um, calendar. So you've got somebody who doesn't the share one person values. who doesn't share your values is running your, your social character. Great, right? <laughs> that's not going to work. It's happened is it? about five or six times in the last seven years. It's really yeah. funny, um, but the, but the, the, it you know when you move those people out of your business, it's you know management cliches. But um, you know what becomes tolerated, what is tolerated becomes the way we do things around here. Yeah, and if you tolerate somebody whinging and moaning and putting downing tools at 501 and uh, uh, and campaigning against a person in the office or whatever it is, that becomes the way that you are. That becomes your culture. Those people shouldn't be in your business. Absolutely. Um, and everybody will be infinitely happier. And you will get a string of people coming up to you saying, I don't know why you didn't do that six months ago. Mm. So, Felix, in summary... Put together a growth lab team. Work out a big, hairy, audacious goal for three years' time. Yeah, and not just a financial one. It's got to be a cultural one as well. Yeah. So there's something in there about finance. There's something in there about quality. There's something in there about people. Yes, absolutely. You then work backwards to say, well, what's going to happen in year three? What's going to happen in year two to make year three happen? What's therefore got to happen this year? Yeah. Then you break it down so that you're doing things quarter by quarter. And you've broken it down into research it, design it, implement it. Yeah. And then you start again. So each of your five or six people can get four things done in a year. Yeah. Well, that's 24 things. Amazing, isn't it? That's is right. That's a lot of change you can create in a year. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. When I was a owner, it was, it was, it was, we'd get three or four big chunky things done in a year. So, Um, so yeah. You've got the CFO in there keeping tabs on the numbers and educating people, educating people, helping folk understand what's profitable, what's not profitable. 
And also liberating the tasks. I have to say, really important. You know, having the CFO in the room mean while this stuff is being designed means that the CFO will understand the context of what investment is required and why we're doing it. And will be able to uh, liberate the right amount of resource yes. to, to allow it to happen in the right way because they understand the journey that we're going on rather than being reactive, which yeah. unfortunately most CEOs force CFOs into a position of, of being focused on cash flow and being on the back foot and, and having a budget and so on that is a limiting yeah. thing. We now start to think of budgets as being a liberating thing. Yeah. So the last thing we want to be doing is the growth lab team taking their proposals to the CFO who hasn't been part of putting them together. Absolutely. We want the CFO very much involved in the production of the ideas Mm. and owning the ideas, therefore needing to own the budget that makes them happen. But, But we all know that constraints are one of the most important parts of any transformative brief. We need to know what resources we've got available so that we can invent a solution that will work within those parameters. Mm. So that's where an understanding of finance and the absolute involvement of the finance team uh, or the CFO, the head of finance, it becomes a critical component of the ability to create a scalable company. Yeah. Felix, I think we could go on talking about this all day. I'm <laughs> conscious should. of time that we've been going on for, for a good 45 minutes. <laughs> Felix, that has been absolutely fascinating. And I really encourage anybody that's enjoyed listening to what we've been talking about and go and get a hold of a copy of Scale and Speed. It's certainly been one of the best business books that I've read in the last 12 months, all as a result of you appearing on my other podcast, The Next 100 Days. <laughs> and anybody that's listened to this and enjoyed it, listen to The Next 100 Days version as well, because Felix tells some very interesting stories on there that we just haven't even covered today. <laughs> um, so, Felix, thank you very my much pleasure. for being our guest today. My absolute pleasure, Kevin, uh, as always. Um, yeah, and if anybody's got any questions, I answer questions all the time. Just reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free. Thanks Brilliant. for having me on. Thank you. Okay.